Hey, this is John from Seven Dust and Projected, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalheads, Scott here. And Richie. Back once again for another episode of Focus on Metal. And uh, great guest you got on this week. Uh, you went and talked to John Conley from uh, Seven Dust, but also from our buddies at Rat Pack with, uh, with Projected. Yeah, you were a Seven Dust fan. Um, I like a lot of the stuff they did, but then there's stuff that I'm just kind of like, eh. But, but overall, yeah, I, I actually do like a lot of the stuff that they do. How big are they? Uh, you know, they were they got big for a while, but not it, it tapered off pretty quick with a lot of the other bands that were like that, though. But there's definitely still a lot of hardcore fans around. What are we talking? Late nineties, late nineties, new metal yeah. scene. Is that yeah. when they came up? Yeah, a little, the old, yeah. Um, not like the Corns, but like after that, yeah. Okay, I don't own any of their albums. No. Yeah, and I was hit up to talk to John. Uh huh. And um, I was sent the album, and I. I I didn't know what to expect. I I knew um, I knew it had like the the guy out of Tremonti, right? And it had had the, the drummer from Alter Bridge, and then the two guys from Seven Dust. Yep. And I was thinking, mm, what the hell is this going <laughs> to sound like? Yeah. And the album blew me away. I don't even have the first record, Human. I don't even yeah. have it. Yeah. And um, this double album, and it was like holy shit because it had everything I love. It had riffs. Yeah, it had solos. Yeah, it had clean vocals. Yeah, uh, for the most part. Yep, and the songs were great. And uh, it is long though. Like it's, it, it's a well, double, double album. album. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just blew me away. And I couldn't wait to speak to John. I, I the thing was, I couldn't really ask him any seven those <laughs> questions because I don't really know much about him. Yeah, but then again, he, I mean, he's he was really coming on to talk about projected, anyways. Yeah, well, I was the right guy then to get to talk to him because he wasn't getting nothing else from me. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you did tie a little bit in with some of the songwriting and yeah, choosing between bands and stuff like yeah. that. So that's it's it's there. But I, no, I think, it, you know, the same kind of thing is, you know, you're talking to the other guys, you really wouldn't be talking about Toronto all the time either. You're really talking about the projected album. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I got into it pretty deep with it on, on some of the... Yeah. Some of the songs on it and the way it was recorded and what he learned from the first record and all that. And, uh, you know, I, I got on, yeah, it was good with John. You know, I got a few mm. laughs out of him. And yeah, I've listened to some of the other interviews he's done to promote it. And when he's in interview mode, it, a lot of it, his questions are very similar. Or he'll go somewhere with uh-huh. an answer that he's already gone. And like that that song, 10 Years Gone, is one thing that yeah. came up in a few interviews. Well, he knows the game. He does. They yeah. all know the game yeah. at this stage. Right. You know, we we play the game. Uh-huh. They play the game. Right. And well, but there's some guys that are kind of are, are really straight in, and that's the kind of, that's the interview you get is pretty much that. Although we usually send them curveballs of stuff they don't expect. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, there's... Um, there's definitely other guys that are just pretty much just freestyling. I mean, that was good about like having uh, Jimmy DeGrasso on. I mean, he wasn't playing the game at all. He just yeah, was like, he's, you know, like Jimmy is uh, not only a shit hot drummer. Oh, did you realize that uh, yesterday was Wayne T. The Contagious album, thirty years old yesterday. Oh no! Oh, did I you post it? I did. Oh of my god! I posted it. I'm dead. He's, what are we gonna do? I don't know. At this day and oh, you've crossed me. De- again. You've crossed the line, man. <laughs> crossed the line. What the hell? But um, yeah. Well, Jimmy's. 
probably a guy that a lot of people don't ask to interview. He's a drummer. People yeah. don't normally ask for drummers. Yep. But the one guy we had on this year, and within 30 seconds of me talking to him, I knew what he was going... You know what you were saying? He's singular vision. You, yeah. I'm going to market it, and this is where I'm going, and this is where I'm going. Brad Gillis. You have, yes, very much so. Straight away. Very much so. Here's where I'm playing the gigs. Here's here's the way we do it here. He was just plugging himself constantly, which which is fine. Yeah. But um, (laughs) it was really, it was very, very obvious. Yeah. And the the guy at that stage, we, like, I was, I I scheduled it and he was on a run of interviews and the day he was actually talking to us, Uh Uh, Jack Blades was supposed to do him and he couldn't and he had to do more (laughs) and I'm thinking to myself his head must be wrecked talking about the same stuff for three hours on end but he sold himself he was like Mm -hmm. selling the album big time which was fine but uh, it was, you know, there was not nothing really spontaneous about that. Yeah. I could ask him what the weather was like, <laughs> and he'd talk about the album. You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it, a good, uh, a good, uh, good interview with John. But uh, before we get into that, I just, you know, we we had Derek on and um, on the part of the the Kerrang thing, and and obviously now they've a couple of rock candy albums, uh, albums, magazines. magazines have come out now. You let me borrow a couple of them. Finally got to read them. I was like, wow, this is this is really good. It reminds me a lot of some of the magazines from like the 80s, very picture heavy and, and all of that. Um, but then also some kind of modern layout themes in it as well. And then it does remind me a, to some degree of, of classic rock, but classic rock had kind of a like the deeper kind of the deeper stuff that they would go into and then it, and then it kind of has the crank stuff in there with the like the theme of like like the theme of mustaches runs through both both issues you know mm-hmm. so it kind of has that kind of little bit of humor that kind of weaves its way in but um yeah i thought you know pretty cool pretty well done well this is all the Kerrang writers i grew up with yeah a lot of them we've talked to and they're not bashful are, about it no, either are are in this and they talk about the stories that were big in Kerrang in the 80s and yeah. kind of put their own spin on it now and at you know what happened afterwards right and, um that and that's cool on that is kind of that like the because both of them had a feature on there of like what 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 happened afterwards yeah then. yeah which is cool yeah they don't um they don't really talk about much of what's happening now it's yeah. all a lot all the stories are in the past yep with yep. their with their slant on it now um which is which is great. Like they don't do album reviews that are out now. The only album reviews they do are the the rock candy, and that's ones, and that was which like are old albums. Speaking of like selling yourself, that was like that was I you know read the first one and I'm like oh albums and I was like wait a minute, it's a rock candy album. Wait a minute, this is a rock candy album. Wait a minute, it's a rock candy album. So I, I kind of had a little bit of laugh on that. That that uh, and not, I mean not everything they did was that because they had like um like what they had the Pete Way book in there. They had a couple of other DVDs and things that weren't rock candy products at all, but all of the album stuff that was there was all, was all rock candy stuff, which kind of, it kind of amused me, but it's like, all right, well, I mean, it's your magazine, Derek. Yeah. The, the, one, want. the one in front of me here now, issue, uh, issue two with Iron Maiden on the cover. That's got a great interview that, with John Sykes about 1987. That was a very good interview. It's, I thought a lot about that one after I read that too, because yeah, it's, it's interesting, but you wonder, okay, there's kind of, there's John's version of it. There's David's version of it. We really haven't heard Neil or Ainsley's version of it. Like what is really like, 
I'm sure that, that he's not saying total untruths, but, you know, what is it all really lie? Well, the box set is David's version. End of story. <laughs> <laughs> That's why this interview I thought was really good. Yeah, I, okay, that that was a really good interview. Uh, I just, yeah, I, I don't know if it's how much of it really is is straight up dead on. Uh, and it does remind me of an interview um, years ago with, um, I think it was with a couple of the guys from from Dio, and, and they just were laying out exactly why they were pissed off. And, well, was this and on the DVD? And, Last in Line DVD? No, no, no. Even before but that's, that? Yeah, it was, before, it, was in a, it was in a magazine, and I'll be damned if I remember which magazine it was in. But uh, they were talking all about the, the contracts and the promises and all that stuff. And so, so then when you see it in the Last in Line DVD, and, you know, you finally get the final, uh, who finally broke down? Was it Jimmy? Somebody finally was like, ah, fuck it, and, and like started talking. Yeah, it was Jimmy, I think. When he, was, um, when he didn't fall off the chair. <laughs> yeah, I'll get tangled <laughs> up in the microphone. Yeah. Yeah, actually, there was a cool little write-up on Jimmy in, in one of those issues, too. Yeah, but the, the thing about the, what the John Sykes interview and this that I took away as well is this magazine got the interview. Yeah. That'll tell you how much high regard it, Sykes probably holds a lot of these writers, that this magazine was able to get it when you would have been, you would have had a load of different media outlets after Sykes to talk about this for years. Um, you know, I don't know if they would. Ah, they would. For that album? Definitely. 30 years old this year. And and Rock Candy, a brand new magazine, gets an interview with Sykes about it. Yeah. He doesn't really talk that much. No, he doesn't talk at all. Exactly. But I'm thinking that, you know, a lot of the stuff that, like, you read on the internet and stuff like that, it's just, it's just gloss. So it's like okay, so White Snake, thirty years, right? Oh, okay. Well, we'll just we'll get some words from David, and we'll be and everyone will be all happy. And I don't I don't think there's as many people that want to, you know, find out about this other stuff. So I, I mean, I think it was a great idea that they went and they got John to talk about it. Mm. Uh, I just yeah, I don't know. I just think it's kind of I, I mean, maybe I got a dim view of people. Well, I know I do, uh, but. It's it's kind of like with music too. Some people, they, most people, just think music is this background commodity. They don't pay much attention to it. It just it's there, whatever they you know. And and I think they they kind of think the same thing about uh, you know your eight second soundbite off the internet or whatever too. And I mean, how many people do you think probably hit blabbermouth and never click the read more button at the bottom of the story to actually read more about the story? They read about the first two sentences of it and they go, oh, okay, and they just you know what I mean. It's like it's almost like designed to be that way. That you just can take your your, your quick two sentences and think you 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 you're an expert kind of a thing. I don't yeah. know my opinion. Yeah. The other thing that I find really cool about the magazine is they'll get a musician to break down a, another band's catalog. They got Scott Ian to do ACDC. Yep. They got Ricky Warwick to do uh, Tin Lizzy. And what was interesting about both of those is that in both cases they they didn't just like toss it off. That they, you could tell they actually gave thought because in both cases, they actually kind of went back a little bit on what they had to avoid. Like they reassessed the, the album that they said to avoid, and and put it into a different light, and even kind of came up with a different opinion themselves at the end of it. Mm. So that tells me that they that they're they're passionate about it, but they're also like thinking about it as well, and and they and they really 
put some time and into it and some heart into it. And I noticed that with both of them, that uh, Ricky reversed himself on Thunder and Lightning, and um, Scott reversed himself somewhat on, um, I don't remember which one it was. Well, the one he hated was Ball Breaker. The ball Breaker, he right. He hated it. Yeah. But he was even had you know thoughts about it, too, and like, well, this might be good or that might be good. But So, uh, yeah, that was a good one. And I also like the... Um, the album artist. Oh, and they dissect the sleeves. Yeah, oh, that's because I really like the book that uh, that Martin put out years ago about all the album art. Great book. Talk to, to artists and fade to black. And, I think yeah, the hard, yeah, yeah, I've got it. Yeah, and I mean that's a great book, and it's almost like every month you're you're getting like another chapter of fade to black. In yeah, there the guy who that. actually did the cover is dissecting the whole cover. Yeah, all all parts of it. It's, and it's, you know, it's so it's the, the like you know the Roger Dean one was great, and and, uh, and Magnum. Just, yeah, I was like, oh, I figured Richie was all over this one with the yeah, Magnum yeah. cover. Um, but then also, you know, the, the doing the Asia one was kind of an odd one too. But that was good because he tied in all the other ones too. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, I just that, those those are actually pretty cool. But there's there's one thing that I I I've noticed over these three issues uh-huh. that this does not have that every other magazine has, and it's all the better because it doesn't have it. And what what is it? Um. A CD included? No, it doesn't have advertisements in it. Uh, no, whole, it does. Yes, it does. No, for their own magazine, for their own stuff. Oh, oh, no, not for their own stuff. But like, I know that what is it, I think issue two, when you go into the the the, the second page is like a big management company ad and stuff. Where? Right there. Oh well, okay. <laughs> That's one page. It's I, not I, full of them, though. No, it's not full of them. No. Okay. No. Yeah, it, maybe it might be in in the future because. This is a hundred-page magazine that has a hundred pages, more or less, of music. It's and, not, and and it's and that. it's glossy and it's color, and yeah, that there's there's a lot of cost in that magazine. Yeah, it, it the quality is great. It doesn't have um, it's not full of ads in the back for gigs, or any of that kind of stuff. It's uh, it's just really, really well put together, and it's actually getting better. I think. Mm. Because I've got issue three and um, it's got uh, the scorpions on it. Nice. And yeah, there's some great, great articles in that one as well. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I'm glad you let me borrow it. Um, I'll I, get the other one down to you. But it was, uh, yeah, I thought they were really enjoyable and um, just kind of a, a good kickback. You can even take it in little bite-sized chunks and stuff. And uh, yeah, I think it's a great job from from Derek and Howard and what they're what they're doing. Mm, so glad, hopefully it keeps going. Yeah, I'm glad. I hope they do keep going. I think the plan is to keep going. And uh, it'll sell more to CDs, hopefully. It's not going to do it any harm. I'm no, sure. I mean, I think it does. I mean, it will definitely let people know they're out there and that they're, I mean, they're continuing to, to add to the catalog. Yeah, yeah. I just picked up um, another rock. Um, do you ever hear of a band called Strangeways? Uh-huh. Yeah, I got their Native Sons remastered yesterday. Mm. Rock Candy, it's fantastic. I think the the one thing I guess that that, that is good for Derek and his label is that you see, like, the regular ads for rock candy and they have them in there too where it's really just a page of album covers yeah and you look at that and go oh okay and and then you look at the price of the album and you go well do i really want to pay this much for this this album like but at least there you can see okay well this is what else you're getting you're getting you know another interview in some cases you're getting bonus tracks so it does give you a little bit more detail and it will make, I think, make a lot of people go back to the Rock Candy label web- website and look at some of these other albums and say, well, what else am I getting on this? Oh, wow, maybe this is, 
and 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 then hopefully knowing from and if you guys haven't listened to our Derek Oliver interview, definitely go and check that one out. Uh, towards the back end of the interview, he does talk about some of the cost in obtaining the rights to do these albums. So it isn't like it's just, you know, he's just getting it for nothing and doing it. There's a lot of cost involved in finding out who owns the rights to begin with and That's obtaining the, first the rights. That's the the albums are so bloody old and all these labels of like yeah. gone or merged or... Yeah, and then, you know, <laughs> getting the right, getting the media and all that. So it's, he is putting a lot of time and effort and energy into it, but then the fact that he isn't just taking the same old, just the audio that he's got and dumping it on there and saying, there you go, is they're, they're putting some extra effort into it as well. So, and I think that's what's nice about the the stuff on the back where they're reviewing those is that they you kind of find out more about what's what's in them. Yeah, I I think um, the remaster. I've probably got about twenty of their CDs, mm. and the remastering job is phenomenal. Mm. On and you just look at what you have at home, and you're like. Fuck! I wish they'd do that one, and I wish uh-huh. they'd just. Which I kind of hinted that to Derek when yeah. I spoke to him about Badlands and Lion. Right. Like there's certain albums out there that right. people are asking. But uh, even Jerry was like, "Hell, I don't know how I can do the Lion one." <laughs> yeah, but um, maybe we'll have Doug Aldrich on again soon, and I'll uh, I'll talk to him about the, who owns the Lion catalog. He probably doesn't know either. I think the last time he said he doesn't know where the masters are. Yeah. <laughs> Get into an old, uh, a topic for a few minutes. Yeah, we got a few minutes before we uh, dive into the the, uh, the interview. Yeah, so of course we're big Striper fans. We've had uh, we met Michael. We met the band actually, and uh, we've had Michael on the show four or five times. Yeah, and one of the things that and he's a great, super honest guy. Oh, he's a always great, great guy. having him great on. Guy. Yep. Great guy. And um, you know we we. We, one of the things I've said to him in the interviews over the years we've spoken to him is uh, they have the original guys in the band. Uh-huh. That, that That's very important. Sure. And of course, in the last week or so, it's, you know, it's come out that Tim Gaines has left the band. Yeah. And I don't know whether you've uh, 
you've been following this at all about, the, well, the supposed reason why? No, I, I really, you know, I haven't been following it. I won't say that I was surprised and only because I know he had some, you know, issues with media in the past. Backing up even there to what you just said a second ago about having met the band and stuff is that when we were like last time we were we were we were down with the band, the only person who didn't interact with anybody was Tim Gaines. He came up late and he stood in the corner talking to one or two people. But and then he just sat down. I'm not down gonna judge the guy and on, he, on that. And he didn't like I mean, obviously Oz went and he hung out with like all the guitar playing friends. He hung around for a while and he went down to the bar and, and he and it's like, all right, that kind of makes sense, and and uh, and that was fine. Um, and then you know, obviously Robert was just really super outgoing, and and uh, we, we even before him, we went inside, he we was, met you know Robert outside, yeah, and, and, he was and great. Oz outside, and yeah, of course we went upstairs and met, yeah, we met, we were talking to Michael, and yeah, and then and Michael we looked was, over in the corner, yeah, and Tim was in the corner having a beer with 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 somebody, well, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't even know he'd come in, but and he just kind of didn't really. Didn't really interact. You know, Michael was being, you know, obviously being an awesome well, he didn't, host. He didn't interact with us. He probably thought we were dickheads. <laughs> <laughs> sign this. Sign this. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. But, but, yeah, so I wasn't, you know, just I wasn't overly shocked when I, when I heard it. But I wasn't, I haven't been following it either. All right, I'll, here, I'll read you a quick piece here. And we'll, we'll go through this and get our thoughts on it. Following hiatus due to bass player Tim Gaines' divorce, Christian metal band Striper is going through a divorce of its own, parting ways with Gaines after a year of bad blood led to toxic relationships. Gaines remarried in May, and according to the band, he and his new wife Brandy have made it impossible for the band to continue intact. Instead, Gaines will be replaced with plans to begin recording the follow-up to 2015's Fallen in October and an upcoming tour. Now, what do you take from that paragraph? They brought, they brought up the wife's name. Yeah. <laughs> not, just, not just him, which I found um, illuminating. Well, I don't know if... I don't know. I'll play devil's advocate. Are they, did they bring up the wife's name just because they wanted to make it clear that it wasn't the ex-wife, but the new wife? I think she's been saying things as well uh-huh. as him. Yeah. And I think it rubbed people in Striper up the wrong way. Ah. Uh. That, you know, he got married to her and all of a sudden now she's starting to say things and maybe they're going, hang on a second. Yeah. Where where were you for the last 30-something years? You know, that kind of deal. So she's kind of Yoko Gaines? Uh, yeah. That's, <laughs> I was actually hoping you'd I, say I was that. like, I'm thinking, what does this sound like? And I was like, right at the mic, I was going blank. Yeah. So the Probably because I couldn't make the jump from Brandy to Yoko was probably <laughs> what it was. The band decided to take a hiatus in order to give Tim time and space to work through his personal issues. The band noted in a statement about the split. Yeah. However... Based on Tim and Brandy's intentional, erratic, and hostile behavior, which has damaged Striper and threatened to undermine the band's ability to go forward professionally, we were left with no other choice but to part ways. Tim and Brandy have left their scars and have hurt us in more ways than you can imagine. Now, can you imagine what has to happen for a band to come out and actually make a statement like this? Like, How often yeah, do you see something like this? But if that's... I mean, we've talked to we've talked to Michael before, 
And, I mean, he is a pretty honest and forthright guy. Have you read I mean, his book? There's stuff that he said to us in interviews that we were even like afterwards, like, wow, I can't believe he actually just said that. Yeah. So I think I think he's at a at a point. Not, I definitely think he's at a point now in his career where he just he says what's on his mind and he and whatever's in his heart, and I, that kind of kind of sounds like him. Well, he's 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 the leader of the band now. Yeah. Um, he made it very clear in the book that mm-hmm. he was only going to come back if this, 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 and this happened. Yeah. Um, he, you know, he, he's, a, he's a front man, plays mm-hmm. a lot of lead, writes all the music. Yeah. Um, I think his wife manages the band. Mm. Um, might be wrong there, but, um, you know, she's an integral part of it anyway. Yeah. But uh, I just found it odd that the band have to come out and make a statement about the bass player leaving, naming him, naming Tim <laughs> and his wife. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God, what the hell's been going on? This what in the background for a while. Don't mind, don't mind what's actually out there. Yeah, you know, for them to say that it, it's you know his behavior has been erratic and yeah. I mean, the only other thing I can think of is that you know maybe they've got counsel that says, look, this is what you you, you need to do for whatever reason. You know, it's it's kind of like you know being a manager at work, and there's certain things that you you just have to you have to document, you have to put in writing, you have to just make whether you you know you like to or not you. That's kind of the trail you have to leave to uh, to have kind of a positive and and uh, non you know litigation fueled you know aftermath. Yeah. So Gaines recently told KNAC that his divorce caused a major rift in the band and fan community due to their Christian values. Now, one thing I will say about that is, you can talk about a band like Black Sabbath, right? Mm-hmm. Black Sabbath in the seventies had the nut job devil worshippers that used to follow him, right? Yeah. So you flip this the other way with the Christian, uh-huh. Christian p- people. Some of the Christians are, you know, they're pretty o- overt in, in, you know, their views and their right. values and stuff yeah. like that. So they ho- they probably hold the guys in striper to a really oh, high... Oh, I, rem- I remember reading articles, you know, back in the day um, where, yeah, the guys were miserable because it was just kind of like, you had some of these more fanatical Christians who were just like, "Oh my God," you know, and for Michael everything said, they did. Michael talks about it in, in his in his book, honestly, which yeah. is great. That um, even in in the eighties, he had a, uh, you know, there were people coming up, you know, religious people coming uh-huh. up and challenging them and everything. You're fake and and all this kind of crap, and they were really like yeah. making his life miserable. Yeah, and you're thinking, you know. And people take it to you know beyond. I mean, that's it's like it's his it's his belief. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And and I, I mean that's what it is. It's it's. I mean, I think he even talked about it with us. It's not so much as the religion. It's just it, it's his it's his belief system. You know, and he yeah, it's the songs he writes, and then that is what he believes. And um, but it's not like he's you know running to become pope or something. It's I mean, it's just I mean, he tries to live that life. But I mean, I mean, I'm not Bible thumper. But you go back and read the Bible, and even you know, disciples and stuff, they all f- had faults too. I mean, that's the that's the way a human being is, right? I mean, get over it. Mm. I think that uh, they're just held to a higher standard. But I, I, they it's are. Probably, it's, 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 probably, un, it's unfair. I'm sure it's a minority, yeah. but they're out there. Yeah. And the people and these people are on social media. Yeah. <laughs> and they can get to you. I know. So I think that can end up causing problems. So 
He ended up getting a divorce, which is taboo as far as Christianity, I guess. Nobody bothered to oh. look into why I got a divorce. Now I'm in big trouble. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was 20 years of bad marriage, but nobody bothers to look into the abuse and all the stuff that went along with it. Yeah. They just see me getting a divorce and getting remarried and come to their conclusions. So whatever. People will be the way that they are. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm not the only guy in Striper to have gotten a divorce. Everybody in the band is married to divorce people, and I'm the bad guy, but everybody else has done it too. So, whatever. Live in glass houses, and everything will be exposed at some point or another. So do you think that him getting a divorce caused him to leave Striper? I don't no. at all. I think that's just a, yeah. an, ex- an excuse. There's a yeah. lot more going on there. Yeah. But I, I, do, I, mean, I do feel bad for those guys because I mean, they make good music, and I mean, regardless of what their subject matter is, uh, they still they they write great stuff. They put on a great show. Um, they're all very talented, and it's like, like what the hell? Like just leave things be. Yeah. So, you know. So of course, Striper claims the divorce had nothing to do with the split. Yeah. The accusations that have been made that a decision to terminate Tim is based on his divorce couldn't be further from the truth. We've all struggled with separation and divorce in our relationships over the years, and it's never affected anyone's position within the band. So Striper has already removed gains from the roster of band members on their website. Hmm. So that's it. Wow. Yeah. I mean. It's sad. It is sad. And, you know, I'm sure that if there's any of this tangled up in that, I'm sure that, you know, it does make Michael reflect back of all, like, all the backlash he had after he got remarried, too, which is also really kind of undue. Well, he got, um, again, it's in his book. He got a, viciously attacked by certain people. Not, I don't think it's that he got remarried. It was how quickly he did it. Right. And, um, you know, he, he wants to be happy. And he's, he's very happy now. And, um, but I'm friends with Michael on Facebook. Yeah. And, uh, oh, and his wife's great. I mean, we, we met super. her too. And she's, she's yeah, she's super. awesome. Yeah. And um, she looked after us for, at the shows. Yeah. She yeah. was the one that hooked yeah. everything She up. was great, but she was also just really friendly and, and, and just really outgoing and and, uh, and you could tell it was very genuine. Yeah. You know, and yeah. So I'm friends with Michael on Facebook mm. and um, he put up a post the other day about this was the last thing he was going to mention about Tim. Yeah. He said he's getting a lot of personal messages, like people going after him about this. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. I'm, you see, we, we don't have all the information. Yeah. We're just reading a statement here and yeah. giving our two cents about it. Uh-huh. Um, and the people who are, you know, messaging him as well. No, nobody has, the only people that have the information are the guys in the band and, and the people in the inner circle yeah. that know what's going on. Right. And it, it, this is a case of, you know, he said, she said kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it is a pity, though, because there's not that many bands out there now that have the four original members. Now, I know Tim didn't play on... Um, Reborn and Murder. I don't think he played on Murder by Pride. Yeah. But he played on the last couple. And, mm-hmm. you know, he, when I, the, he is pretty... I thought Tim was great with the band. His backing vocals were definitely uh, a big part of their sound with him and Oz yeah. and Michael. Yeah. Um, but will it, will it hurt the band moving forward? I don't think so. No. Um, I put it up on our Facebook page and a lot of people seem to think it didn't really mean a damn. Yeah. I think just from... Uh, nostalgic viewpoint, you know, that Striper had the four original guys and they were still in the band was yeah. uh, a selling point. But 
I think the promoters, it's not going to affect the promoters. They're still going to book Striper. Sure. You're still going to have the guitar player, the other guitar player, the frontman, right. the drummer, and they'll bring in some, some bass player. Mm-hmm. I'd love to know who they're going to bring in. Sean McNabb. I was going to say Sean McNabb. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm sure they're going to bring in someone who's, who's killer. That, that sings great. Well, Sean yeah. does. But I mean, if they, even if they had to do somebody that was local, that's phenomenal. It would be uh, David Height. Yeah, yeah, but you got to get there. You, you think, and that, I think, I think actually, I think Michael knows him too. Yeah, but you think they're going to be recording an album, and a lot of next year they're going to be touring. Mm-hmm. So they need to get someone who's in it for the, you know, for the long haul. Yeah, can but do like all I said, I think I mean David. David is the guy who filled in for Tom Hamilton when he was down with cancer. Well, he must be pretty handy then, you know. <laughs> and and he, you know, he was he was. The, as David Hull, he was in the Joe Perry project. Yeah, but and then he was in Fahrenheit, and you know, he's, if they, if they he's have to be true to their message, they have to get in a guy who has got strong Christian values. Mm. I think if they don't, then there's going to be you know probably an e- a pretty big backlash about that. Well, as they well. might be able to dig up Mother Teresa right there and <laughs> do a mean slap and pop. She can lay down the funk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I just found this story interesting. Yeah, um, because of we're we're friend, you know, we're not friends of the band. Like we've met all the band. I'm, yeah, I'm a big fan of the band, and it's because of the stance the band take. Yeah, you kind of you you kind of knew that this was gonna uh, maybe be treated differently by a, a lot of people hmm. who have strong beliefs in in God. Yeah, and uh, some of the guys in the band are getting viciously attacked over this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? Why don't we play a little Striper, come out of the Striper, and we'll go right into the uh, John Conley interview. Sure. Awesome. John, how you doing? Doing good, how are you? I'm good. Is it a good morning or a good afternoon where you are? It is noon. It is afternoon. All right, you're an East Coaster. Okay, very good. Yes, sir. Yes, I'm a fellow East Coaster, East Coast of Ireland. 
<laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm actually just outside of Boston now, so. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, so I'm, re- I'm really looking forward to this, actually. Love the album. Brilliant. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, so it's been out a few weeks now. How's the press been going so far for it? Everything's been good. I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, you know, a, a little bit of a learning curve with the record. I mean, I've never done a double record before, so, you know, kind of all bets are off, so to speak, when you, when you do something like this. But it's, it's been great so far. Yeah. Now, now, what's the biggest lesson you learned from human that, that you brought into this one? Um, biggest lesson. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think as efficient as we worked on human, we probably did that, you know, two or threefold on this one. And it, it was just being smart about how we, how we, you know, went about the process. And then we've done, you know, in the world of seven us, we've gone through the vulgar display of, you know, how much money can we throw on a record? Uh, animosity, I think, you know, we spent a couple million dollars between all the marketing and everything for it. Mm-hmm. Remixes, you know, doing crazy stuff. And this is the opposite of that. You know, we said, let's go in, let's make it sound great, um, but let's not just throw a bunch of money at it, you know, in hopes that we'll ever make it back, you know. Human we did, you know, on a shoestring budget. Um, we did real drums, real guitars in studio, mixed in a studio, but everything else was done in my house. This record was basically the exact same process. We, you know, we went to a studio, we tracked all the, the drums and main rhythm guitar parts, and as soon as we were done, we packed up all the hard drives and we moved back to my house again. Okay. And being that you're doing 21 songs, you know, obviously the process gets a little bit deeper and a little bit more involved, but I, I think that was, that was the thing that we probably learned the most was just, you know, you don't need to spend you know, millions of dollars to make something sound good. You know, mm-hmm. you can do it in today's age. You know, people complain about Napster and file sharing and, you know, stuff going up on YouTube and all this stuff. And it, it, it is, you know, something that you have to think about and something you have to kind of get your head wrapped around. But at the same time, um, technology has gotten to the point where, I mean, you can make a great sounding record in your home office. Yeah. And that's kind of what we've been doing. You know, I figure, all right, if, you know, if the world is going to take advantage of, you know, streaming and things like that, you know, and use the computer to its full potential, then I'm going to do the same thing on the opposite side of the fence. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to record music with the same concept. You know, I mean, a, a song is a song. It doesn't matter whether you have, you know, a million dollars thrown at it, you know, you're an electric lady or you're some fancy studio or you're in your bedroom. Um, if you can make it sound decent in the bedroom, then do it in the bedroom. You know, um, and and that's kind of what we did with human and with this. You know, we just, uh, you know, we're just super, super, you know, focused on what are we doing, what are we not doing, all that good stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. Now there's been a five year gap between both, both of the albums. Um, did you did you ever talk about you know maybe changing the members if it hap- if if it came up if it happened and someone couldn't do it or was it ever only going to be E four guys doing it? You know, it, I've had a lot of people ask me about that, but I think my biggest hurdle is the fact that um, there's a good bit of push and pull between Kamani and Alterbridge, um, because I have a member of both of those bands. Yeah. <laughs> Not necessarily poor planning on my part, but, you know, I know Mark well enough to know that when he's not an Alter Bridge mode, he's going to be full-on in Kamani mode and, and vice 
you know, back and forth. It's, it's going to be one of those things. But, you know, we've had some opportunities and some people have thrown a few things at us and said, you know, if Scott wasn't available, you know, would you use fill-in? I mean, it's not ideal. It's not It's not really the way that I want to roll it out like that, um, especially the first time. But, you know, I mean, if, if we had an opportunity that, that was too good to pass up and something that we just, you know, said, okay, we just, we have to do it. You know, it would be one of those conversations that, that you know, obviously we'd, we'd have to dive into. I mean, ideally, no. I don't want to do it with any anyone else other than, you know, the same four guys on the first record and on the second record, and that's that's kind of our band, you know? I mean, it's like, that's, it, this isn't like a Nine Inch Nails, you know? I'm not going to do like Trent Reznor with a cast of characters and, you know, you never know who's going to be playing drums or guitar or anything like that. I mean, ideally... I want to keep it these four people. Yeah. Yeah. When when you hear the term super group, like, do you roll your eyes and say, oh, God. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course. You know, it's like, I mean, that to me, I know it's a convenient term, um, but to me, I'm like, wait, wait a minute. You know, super. <laughs> it's a group. You know, it's a side project. But, yeah, I mean, I, I understand why people do it, you know, because obviously we've, you know, we've all got day jobs and we've all got other bands that, you know, have, you know, we've been in for several decades now at this point. But, uh, but yes, yeah, Supergroup is always a little weird. Yeah, yeah. I've read a couple of interviews you've done recently and you said that this album ties into the Seven Dust Alpha, like that's 10 years old. Is there mm-hmm. any particular reason why you didn't follow that up with Seven Dust? Um, no. I mean, other than the fact that there, you know, it, it just, Records are funny. Like, I never sit down and say, okay, I'm going to map this out, I'm going to plan this out, and this is how this is going to play out. Um, even when we first started this, the, 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 you know, the whole process of writing and, and getting the vibe of what the record was going to be about, usually it's about halfway before I even know what's going on, you know, because I kind of let the records come to me. And it was about at the halfway point when 10 years gone, um, was getting worked on and that was a song that was literally on the alpha hard drive that just it just fell through the cracks and it was one of those songs that i remember when i heard it i was like why didn't you work on this and uh you know i kind of went back and looked around and i was like hey, it, you know it didn't really fit alpha but it definitely fit this record um but it was cool because it was a like literally a direct connection a piece of that record that didn't get finished and you know Jokingly, I called it 10 Years Gone, and, you know, I had a handful of people that were like, well, you can't call it that because there's a Led Zeppelin song called that. And I was like, well, <laughs> it's 10 Years Gone, so I'm going to stay with you. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, you know, I mean, it was kind of one of those things that once you once you kind of realize where you're at, it was like, oh, okay. Now it's all kind of making sense. It's all kind of, you know, coming together, so to speak. Yeah. Did, did, did it cross your mind when you're, you're doing a, a, a project like this? That you want to keep it sep- completely separate to Seven Dust, yet you're revisiting the same theme. You're using some of those ideas. Like, did, was that a little bit uncomfortable in the beginning, on, or how did that go over with you? No, I mean, for me, you know, people used to ask me, like, how, how do you write for Seven Dust? How do you write for Projected? How can you tell the difference? And to be quite honest with you, I can't, you know, because it, it's it, you're not going to know until, you know, either I sing on it or Lejean sings on it. And 
I'm not going to sit here and I'm not going to try to, you know, write some crazy form of music that I'm uncomfortable with doing. I mean, like I kind of do whatever comes and it's a natural thing. Um, you know, the, the biggest difference, obviously, you know, for Jean sings on it, then it, it's going to have a very, very, you know, seven dust type of, you know, thing going on. It's going to have that stamp on it. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't sing like him at all. I mean, we have completely different vocal styles. So, for me, I think that's the biggest thing. You know, Seven Us is, is, is very, very rooted and focused on hit the sound of his voice, a lot of programming. Um, we've always had that element in Seven Us, and that's something that I kind of shy away from a little bit with Projected. We kind of keep it a little bit more stripped down, a little bit more raw. But, but yeah, you know, I mean, for me, I like the fact that it's related, you know, because that's just what comes naturally. You know, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, this song could have been on a seven notes record or, you know, this song could have been on a projected record. And it kind of goes both ways. I mean, we've had some songs that ended up on, uh, there were a couple songs on, on Kill the Flaw that were actually, in my mind, I thought they were projected songs. But when we, when the guys heard it, they really, they liked the music. So we kind of went down that road. And then all of a sudden, you know, I have to explain to Scott and Vinny and Eric why that's yeah. <laughs> it's not going to be on a projector record. We just put it on Kill the Flaw. So, so yeah, there's there's a good bit of back and forth, you know. Yeah. So, so like the first song you wrote for the record probably set the tone for the, for the rest of it. Do you remember which one was first? The first, well, I mean, I guess ten years down technically would be the first. One. Yeah, but the, <laughs> the after, first, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean, the know? newer ones. Yeah. Um, I think Reload was one of the first ones. That was one of the first ones that was finished. Okay. And that was one of the ones that once I had demoed that one out and I played it for a handful of people, you know, still with the whole, I'm not even sure if it's going to make the record or where it's consider everything. Um, that was like unanimously coming back to me with just a lot of positive feedback. I mean, everyone loved that song. So I said, okay. I think I've got something, you know, something that I can dig into and, and kind of use as the anchor. Because um, I got about halfway through the process, <clears throat> that's when I kind of realized not only is it going to be the anchor, but it should be the lead track. Um, so that one kind of set the tone, you know, that that, that was kind of our uh, our launching pad, so to speak. Yeah. When did you realize you had enough, not only enough material for a double album, but enough strong material? Because... You hear a lot of bands saying, oh, yeah, we wrote 20 or 30 songs and 10 or 12 end up on the record. Right. Uh, well, I mean, our intention was to, you know, we always want to go in the studio with a little bit more and then kind of pare it back, you know, shave it down. And, and we had every intention of going in with about 16, 17 songs and then figure out which dozen are going to make the record, you know, and have a handful of B-sides. But every time, I, you know, we try to cut stuff, it didn't matter what song was getting cut. It was an argument to keep it. And it just kind of kept going around. I mean, it, it's a good spot to be in because, you know, it's usually pretty easy. You know, you can figure out which are the weaker, the pile and all that good stuff. And like, all right, well, certain people aren't feeling this one or that one. But it was just, it, it was a difficult process. I mean, it, it was one of those things where it was like people were just personally attached to anything that I was trying to, trying to get rid of. So, we realized pretty quickly that it would be easier to try to push in the other direction as opposed to cut, you know, keep everything and let's see if we can get an additional, you know, four or five songs and then just see where it ends up. Um, but it's not that difficult. Like once you're, you know, once you're at a number of 16, 17, you know, to push up to 21, it just, you know, it really didn't take that much more work. It was just a, a matter of what 
do we need if we're going to build the landscape of two CDs that are connected, related, and, you know, to, do we need a heavy song? Do we need a lighter song? Do we need a, like, what do we need to, to make all of this, you know, fit together? And I think that was the biggest challenge was just, you know, sitting there and trying to get the pacing and the flow of a record. Um, that's part of the process that I love. I mean, I love sitting down with a batch of songs and going, okay, if you start with this one and you end with this one, you know, how much different is it if you change the order? I mean, it gives the record a completely different vibe and a completely different feel. But for this one, it was an extra challenge because we had to start and stop and hit the pause button and move on to CD2. So we had to connect two of them together. Um, and that process probably took, you know, took a good month, month and a half before it all started to kind of click and make sense. But, uh, but I mean, you know, I've never done a double record before and it, it was, surprisingly a lot easier than um you know looking back on it now it, it wasn't that big of a you know a challenge i think the toughest part was once we had all the songs written and i you know shut down the studio up in butler new jersey and moved back here to, to the house um walking in that first day and looking at a whole board of empty lines <laughs> but i'm like okay i got a lot of vocals to say holy crap <laughs> let's get going you know and uh that was probably the craziest thing was just looking at the empty board going, wow, that's a, that's a whole lot of real estate that we got to fill in. Did you find, John, that you had a lot of music written and then you felt you had to write more music because lyrically you wanted more to say because you're dealing with a concept? Did, did, you, find, did you find a little bit, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was definitely part of, the, part of that, you know. You get in there and you realize, you know, we can go a little bit deeper or how far are we going to go in either direction and all that good stuff. But, but, uh, but yeah, it was... Um, it was definitely, you know, something that, uh, 
I kind of enjoy that though. You know, it's like once you get to a part, you know, a part in the process where you realize, okay, it's it's time to kind of, you know, get back to work, so to speak. And not just the busy work. It's like it's one thing once you've got a song written, once you've got it all sorted out. You know what the parts are. It's basically just getting in there and then just grinding it out. You know, figuring out the best performance on the verse, the best performance on the chorus. But when you realize, okay, we're going to take it that extra step. What more do we have to say here? What more are we going to try to cover? You know, how are we going to tie up whatever loose ends? And uh, that was definitely, you know, a big part of it. Once we got down, you know, to the point where we realized, okay, this is not two records. It's not one record. It's it's a double record. It's a big one. Let's, uh, you know, let's get it all sorted out. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you a little bit about the demos. When you present the demos to the guys, Mm-hmm. Um, other than the guitar and, and maybe some vocals on it, what what instrumentation is on it? Like, is there is there some drums that may, maybe Scott can go off or Vince for bass or how how does that work for you? Yeah, I, you know, I'm kind of one of those guys. Um, I, I started on drums, so drums are a very natural thing for me. Um, I still play occasionally, um, but when I present a demo, the demos are the demos are very very much like the record. Um, they're super, super close. I don't do any fills. I don't do any of that stuff. Um, that's, that's all Scott. He can do whatever he wants to do. I, I usually just keep super basic. I'll have a verse pattern, a pre-chorus pattern, chorus pattern, and then a bridge pattern, and that's it. Um, everything else is, is him kind of connecting, pushing, moving, you know. And it's the same thing with E-Rock. I, I put what I call placeholders. You know, I'll throw this little extra little thing in there or whatever. Sometimes they stick, sometimes they don't. Um, but the demos are, you know, this time around, they had vocals on them and everything. On the first record, I only had about three or four songs written vocally, so Scott was kind of in the dark um, when he was tracking drums. You know, he was like, what are we doing here? I, I have no idea. I haven't even written. <laughs> but on this record, it was totally different because when we sat down with the demos, all the vocals were laid in the holes. There were two or three things that I went back and I revisited and I rewrote, but at least the part was there so that you, you knew what was going to be occupying the space. So we were a little bit better prepared. I mean, even with 21 songs, we, uh, you know, there was no question of, am I stepping on something? You know, can I do something here? Um, we were a lot more prepared and, uh, I didn't completely unintentional. I guess it was just, you know, the amount of time that you sit there and you, you obsess over a project. <laughs> yeah. You've played, a, you played for a long time with Vince. Um, when you were arranging the songs, is there any way he approached the song and then, and played it that you went, wow, I didn't expect him to play it that way? Well, he always does it. You know I mean? that, that That's the beauty of, of having him do his thing. Um, when I'm doing demos, I, I'm a... You know, my bass skills are terrible. I basically just kind of keep the root, ACDC style, just keep the low end. Um, it doesn't really become important until he actually sits down and does his thing. You know, he does the thing. He does his moves. And, you know, he's super subtle about it. Like, he's not a super busy player, but he definitely adds an element that that I don't even try to, to go there. You know what I mean? I, I know that he's going to do it, and he always has done it. And he always will do it. So I just kind of leave him that space and just kind of let him do it. Yeah. And w- what song changed the most from, you said your demos are more or less fully formed. Is there a song that changed um, the most? That's a tough one. I would probably have to say, maybe Rectify. Okay. 
And I think mostly because I couldn't have course for that thing to save my life. I, I mean, I struggled with that song. That song was on the chopping block. It was, it was literally, it was on its way out the door. I was fixing to just dump it. Um, it was one of those ones that, I, you know, usually you can kind of go to a chorus and within the first, you know, two or three rips at it, you'll get something that you feel confident about and then you can kind of move. And that song for me was just, I, I don't know what it was. It was just something that I, I really, really struggled with. And I sent it over to March Money. And, uh, you know, he's a ninja when it comes, you know, 15 minutes later, I had to, he just, you know, sits in his kitchen and just kind of sings over the demo and you could kind of hear it. And then I just went in and I, you know, literally I tracked it that day and it was done. Um, so that one's, you know, was one that, uh, went from, okay, you're fixing to be kicked off the record to one of my favorite songs on the record. Okay. You know, so I definitely have to thank him for uh, saving that one. Yeah. And tell me about the phone call to, to Joe O'Brien at Rap Pack when you, when you said, uh, we have 21 songs and we want to do a double album. Did he say you were mad? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was, it was the opposite. It was so crazy because I, when I approached Rap Pack, I said, we have two records. He said, oh, you did? I said, yeah. I said, the first one's called Ignite and the second one is called My Insanity. There's, there's 10 songs on the first one. There's 11 songs on the second one. And, you know, I figured we're doing the we're doing the smart move here. You know, from a business perspective. Um, and he hit me up. Uh, he and uh, Kevin actually hit me up a few days afterwards and said, "Look, um, you know, we kind of feeling doing a double record." And you know, the artist part of me gets super excited at that point. That you're like, "Okay, this is awesome." You know. Um, there was a lot of talk back and forth about you know the advantages of doing you know doing one versus doing the other, but I think at the end of the day, you know, with with a five year gap between the first record and the second record, it was something that made a lot of sense. So it was like, you know what, you don't talk about keeping your fans happy. You know, I don't care that they're going to be overwhelmed with music. I'd rather them just you know dig into it and, and be able to spend as much time as I need to you know sort through and process because it's it's super popular and in vogue to, you know, do the one, two, you know, maybe EPs, you know, people want to do individual songs, you know, you're almost back to the point where I don't think the record has as much meaning as it, as it used to, because um, people like stuff in smaller doses, but for me, I was like, all right, let's, uh, let's give them a bunch, you know, it's been five years, let's make up for a little bit of lost time, so, you know, Rattack loved it. You know, they they were pushing for it harder than I was, and uh, that's that's a great spot to be. Yeah, and we, we attempted it all to have any. Um, I know you've got the, the the two pieces in the beginning of disc one and disc two. We mm-hmm. attempted it all to have any orchestration or spoken word to tie all the tracks together. We thought about it, um, and it was kind of one of those things where I was on the fence because as soon as you start going, especially on like you know on. Fire, there's a certain amount of programming on it, but there's no, you know, it was like, okay, these are only gonna, those were only two moments that we were gonna go that route. Because the rest of it, I really, really, really wanted it to be stripped down, just the band, you know, vocals, guitars, bass, drums, nothing else. Um, we have so many of those extra elements in the world of Seven Dust that it's kind of nice to, kind of get away from that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
I mean, orchestration is great. We had, we had a few string, you know, ports in the first projected record, but on this one, I said, no. I said, you know, let's just, not only are we going to do 21 songs and make it a huge record, but let's see if we can just pare it back to the bare minimum, just the basics. You know, I like the fact that at any given point in time, the four of us could walk on the stage and grab whatever guitar or whatever amp and play whatever drums and be able to pull the songs off. You know, I don't want to be anchored to orchestration and strings or, you know, extra stuff, bells and whistles and things like that. I mean, for this, you know, for me, it was just like, let's, let's just keep it a band, just to rock band. That's it. Yeah, well, speaking of stripping, stripping it back, this, my favorite song on the album is Fate. Because it doesn't sound like anything else on it. <laughs> that's awesome. That's uh, you know, that, that's one of those songs that, that like, uh, so many people have told me the same thing. They absolutely love that song, and I was on the fence about that song because I was like, I don't know if it fits, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad I put it on there. Um, you know, I knew it didn't fit as well as the rest of it did. I knew it had a completely different element and a completely different vibe, but. You know, we're so used to putting all of those elements, you know, especially in the world of Seven Dust. Um, you know, we're just accustomed to, uh, you know, being able to stretch out and kind of do unconventional things, you know, whether it be like Angel Sun or the Wave and things like that. So for this one, I was like, okay, it's just like, it's an extra half step going in that direction. Um, but it's one of my favorite songs, you know, and it was one of the ones that uh, I said, okay, no, this isn't a, you know, it's not like Reload. It's not like, you know, Battle Station or Ignite or anything like that. But I think it definitely fit. It definitely had a place. It definitely served a purpose. Yeah. Because uh, you know, record to me has to be like a ride, you know. I mean, I like the roller coaster. I like going up the hill and going down and going through loops and going around. And this is just one of those loops, you know. It's just one of those, okay, this is different. But uh, unanimously... Um, people have been reacting really, really positively to that song, so I'm, I'm glad we kept it. Yeah, so so what do you think, John? What are the chances of you playing any shows to, to promote this? I hope so. I mean, this year is going to be tough only because of the, uh, the recording schedule. We start pre-production for 7 uh, October. We track in November and December. Um, <clears throat> but next year, you know, even though we're going to be busy in 7 Dust mode, um, you know, I'm going to see if I can juggle the hats between the two. Yeah, yeah. So, final question for me, John. Would you rather be remembered as a great guitar player or a great songwriter? Songwriter. <laughs> guitar playing is great, um, but guitar playing is mostly for guitar players and, you know, guitar player fans. You know, songwriting is the reason that I do this. I mean, I, I love playing the guitar, but the whole reason that I even play guitar in the first place is because I was a frustrated drummer. You know, it's very difficult to sit behind a drum set and try to relay, you know, thoughts and ideas as far as the, the whole songwriting process. And that, that's the thing that, uh, you know, I love the most. When I sit down with a guitar, the guitar is just a tool. It's a tool to be able to physically write the song. It could be a piano, it could be a saxophone, flute, whatever. Um, but the guitar is the mechanism that I use to get it done. But yeah, songwriting, top for sure. Yeah. And can do you want to give out all the social media links where people get in, can get in touch with you? Sure. Yeah, we've got uh, we've got Twitter, we've got Facebook, Instagram. Um, you know, if you go on Rat Pack Records or uh, you know Facebook, that's probably where we spend the most time. And, uh, and you know, it's just a projected page, projected bands. Uh, I've got a John Conway music page as well, and uh, I'm pretty plugged in as far as uh, Facebook goes. I think you got to be at this stage. 
I think so. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for spending a bit of time talking to me. Um, Gavin, okay. Gavin's brilliant. So thank you very much. Well, hopefully, really hopefully that. when you get up the Boston way, I'll be able to to say hello to you. Okay, awesome. All right, John. Have a good rest of the day. All right, you too. All right, thanks. Take care. a wrap once again for another episode of Focus on Metal. Uh, as far as tunage this week, just in case you're curious, you know, way back at the beginning we cut in really quick to a track and that was uh, Steel Assassin off of the War of the Eight Saints album, a little track called Curse of the Black Prince. Why Steel Assassin? Well, if you remember back last week, Jack Starr was talking to me about other local guys he remembered here in Massachusetts and asked me about Steel Assassin. And ever since then, I've been thinking, you know what? I've never played any Steel Assassin on the show. I've played Malaya Rage before. Uh, that was a big favorite of Jay and I's, but I never played any Steel Assassin. So I thought this week would be a good week to uh, spin a little Steel Assassin. So again, that one is called Curse of the Black Prince from Steel Assassin. Then, of course, a uh, little striper off the Reborn album with Live Again. And then a few uh, choice projected cuts as well with the uh, cut Ignite, as well as uh, one of the tracks that John talked about at length in the interview called Ten Years Gone. So uh, speaking of John, big thanks to John for coming on the show this week and talking to us all about Ignite My Insanity. And uh, if that has ignited your desire to maybe get yourself a copy, then uh, probably should head up to Rat Pack Records and see what our friends have up there for projected always have great bundles with cds and t-shirts just the cds themselves you know mega fan bundles all kinds of good stuff to be had up at rat pack records and while you're there also be sure to check out the brand new lynch mob brotherhood cd and uh, all the related bundles for that bad boy as well so again big thanks to john as well as our friends at rat pack records for hooking this one up so that is a wrap as i said for this week next week 
as the schedule is currently showing, we will be spinning you an interview that Richie did with Lita Ford. Yep, not really out promoting anything, just uh, happy to talk to the media. And so uh, Richie had a pretty wide-ranging interview with Lita, which was pretty cool because, you know, a lot of times when people go out and they do uh, different press things, you know, they're promoting a book or they're promoting the latest album. And in this case, Lita was just kind of promoting Lita. So pretty cool. And Richie was able to ask her a whole variety of questions. So right now, that is what is currently scheduled to run for you next week. And if between now and next week you're getting bored and you want to fill your life in with a little more Focus on Metal, as always, you can head up to focusonmetal.net. Click over to the episodes page, and there's like five, six years worth of different episodes. And you can scroll through there. Maybe you'll see a producer or an artist or an or even an author that might interest you. And you can just download that episode right to your little metal ear holes. That'll, uh, that'll just fill in your life between now and next week. And if not, you're looking for some other great hard rock and metal uh, podcasts, you can always head up to our friends over at Decibel Geek or our buddies at Radioactive Metal, or Signal to Noise, or of course, you know, the mighty Bob Nalbandian with his Shockwaves podcast. Lots of good stuff out there. And if you want to find all that in pretty much one place, then obviously the place to go, earpeeler.com. That's right. They aggregate all the stuff. They do the work for you. So uh, you can find all of those shows I just mentioned, plus Mars Attacks and Talking Metal, all that good stuff. Just go to earpeeler.com and you may discover your second favorite metal show on the net. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is well done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, as I always say, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.